you are listening to an episode of Back Row Movie News. The podcast name and scope has changed. It is now the Broken Record Podcast, uh, but you can still enjoy the past episodes of Back Row Movie News on this feed. Make sure you follow uh, the Broken Record Podcast or Podcast Broken Record. Depends on what social media site on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for updates on future episodes. What's going on, you guys? Welcome and thank you for tuning in to Back Row Movie News. Uh, today, I'm going to do sort of a review, sort of, of one of my favorite movies ever, Oz the Great and the Powerful. I'm going to give you some release info, how it ties into the original movie, and I'm going to try and quantify exactly why I, I love this movie so much. I think it's kind of a mediocre film, but I fucking love it. And that's right here on Back Row Movie News. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Best Seat in the House, everybody. I'm Chase Kubo. Before we get started, please go ahead and subscribe to that YouTube channel. Uh, follow us on social media. Sub- uh, rate us on iTunes or Facebook if you can. Anything you do helps us out greatly. Thank you so much. All right, let's set this off real simply. Info about the movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, this is a prequel to the beloved Wizard of Oz, the, the one that was released in 1939. This movie released in 2013. Uh, the new cha- it's a new chapter in the story, and it's an origin story for Oz, the, uh, well, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, it recounts how he first landed in the land of Oz, oh, and what he had to do to become the acclaimed Wizard of Oz. Uh, how many times can I say Oz? Count it. Take a shot every time. Sam Raimi, who directed the Spider-Man trilogy back in the early 2000s and the Evil Dead, among other things, directed the flick for Disney. Uh, Mitchell Kapner developed the story, and David Lindsay Eber worked on the screenplay as well. And it was all based off of Frank Baum's work. Uh, Frank Baum, he wrote the original series of stories that was set in that world that the original movie was based on. Uh, Danny Elfman, who did the score for Batman 1989, Spider-Man, several other things... He composed the score for this movie. James Franco played the titular character, Oz, with Mila Kunis, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, Michelle Williams, who played Annie slash Galinda, and uh, Rachel Weisz, who played Evanora, and Zach Braff played Frank and Finley. They round out the main cast. The movie was sort of successful. It had a nice opening weekend. It had $140 million dollars which is, it sounds real nice, but uh, its its worldwide gross was only about $493 million in, at the box office. Uh, that, minus the cost of like making it and marketing it and whatnot, point to the film making about $36 million, which is kind of putrid. I mean, it's not the worst ever because they did make a profit. That's pretty much all you have to do at that point, but something closer to $100 million at the box office would have been more of a success. The critical response was meh to bad. Uh, I think it is summed up as an interesting visual experience, but underwhelming. The plot is pretty straightforward. Acting is good enough, if not too hammy. It, it's odd, but bland, which it's an interesting combo, you know? It lacks an edge. I, I don't totally agree, of course. I mean, I do on some of the complaints, but I fucking love this shit anyway, man. James Franco, he wasn't the first actor in mind for Oz. He was the third choice, actually. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. was the first one approached for the role. Uh, he turned it down, so they offered it to Johnny Depp. He turned it down. <laughs> yeah, Casey likes that one. But about a year later, James Franco accepted the role. The writers cited an interest in a fantasy film led or that features a male protagonist as one of the reasons why they were inspired to create the story. 
Uh, the backstory of Oz is it was pretty much inspired by the sixth novel in Frank Baum's series, The Emerald City of Oz, which they actually did a cartoon of, I think, which which sucked, but I fucking loved it as a kid. Uh, the film was sort of an idea dating all the way back to like 2009, 2010, after the production of Wicked on Broadway. Uh, the production, This production, the Oz Great and Powerful, it actually had some major scheduling issues with the cast, but they did overcome it. Uh, fun fact, Mila Kunis had to go through four hours in the makeup chair to be transformed into the Wicked Witch. I think it took an hour or two to take it to remove the makeup as well. So she said that she had some, like, it took her, like, four months, her skin, like, four months to recover after the production because of all the heavy makeup putting it on and off. So we won't hit the mic. So it was pretty wild during production at times. I think an interesting aspect of the film is the effects in sets. I think I think it's really, really cool. The Wizard of Oz is a pretty timeless film now. that now it's... It has a lot of charm due to its sets. It was a musical, so these actors are singing, doing choreographed dances, and uh, uh, it's it's uh, they're doing it through like a stage-like scenery. It's almost like a it's like a, a Broadway stage, you know, like clearly made obvious sets. But seeing it now, it's almost like uh, like cute or vintage in a way. Maybe not the right words exactly, but I hope you get my vibe there. Because it's like they're on that theater stage performing a show, and it just feels so much like it. And the team for this prequel seemed to settle on kind of the same sort of idea. Except this time, they, they obviously they didn't need to build the sets like that, so they used a lot of uh, CGI and computer effects. It, it doesn't have the same exact sense of wonder or awe, which is probably why a lot of people call this bland because they think they just they don't like the effects or they don't think they're effective enough. But the CGI, for me, it's just such a different vibe compared to, like, actual sets. It's just such a different vibe. And as people have pointed out about the Star Wars prequels, for example, it has a, a cold and sterile feel most of the time when you have a really effects-dominated shot, especially in certain movies. I mean, it, but I don't think it's a detriment to the Oz the Great and the Powerful. It is different, but it's also the same as the original in terms of just being like a, a really unique stage sort of feel. You can tell that these are actors on a soundstage in Hollywood standing at times in the middle of giant blue cloths covering the floor, walls, and ceiling. Uh, James Franco spent most of his time interacting with a, a doll, like a literal doll, not a puppet, not animatronic, just a straight doll, and uh, a stuffed monkey. But it's uh, it's so much. Uh, I know that the effects probably inspire a feeling of blah and like not real when a lot of people watch this film. But for me, it has a similar charm to the original movie. They didn't make this, the mistake of trying to be too real or too gritty or like reboot or totally change the uh, the world, like the Emerald City. They they went as close as they could, or they didn't uh, they didn't alter the original story at all yet, at least. Uh, one particular shot to illustrate what I'm trying to get across here is when Oz and Finley are leaving the uh, the Emerald City. They're on their way to go kill the Wicked Witch, and uh, it's everything except for James Franco, like like the props that he's carrying, his clothes. Pretty much everything looks like it's like completely fake, but it's got this weird quality to it. It's only the background, everything in the shot. It's like there's the road, there's him and Finley. Way in the back, there's you know the city, and then there's a fence behind him, and then like a field with some like rainbow uh, unicorn horses feeding. It, it's so the grass and the fence and the road and Franco are real, but. 
It's just everything. He feels it's weird. It's like it feels so isolated, and he feels like he's the center of everything because nothing looks real. But for some reason, I really like it. To clarify, I mean, I thought most, I thought ninety nine percent of this film was like CGI, like nothing looked real. But I guess there were a lot of practical sets. Sam Raimi wanted to have those so that the actors uh, had something to interact with at least a little bit. And then they just, you know, retouched it all or, or re, uh, uh, like skinned over it with CGI in the end. And a fun fact while we're at it, the production was not allowed to call the Yellow Brick Road the Yellow Brick Road. They couldn't even have the same secondary color as it did in the original movies when, like, it swirled into the, the village. In fact, they couldn't really reference or use the likeness of characters or, uh, or names that appeared in the original film. I guess Warner Brothers still owns the right to it, so they were up Disney's ass throughout the entire production. Disney even had someone on set to supervise and make sure that they weren't infringing on any of their copyrights. That sounds like hell if you're the director. I mean, it's stressful enough to make a studio film anyway, but every time you try to block off a scene and the, the wrong color or name or positioning of the, of the backdrop is wrong, someone's here to tell you why you le legally can't do that. You try making high art, in a studio film with that kind of pressure. They were pretty close on the look of the Wicked Witch of the West, which they didn't actually call it the Wicked Witch of the West, but there was no mole or mole hair, and a different shade of green had to get the job done. I think Disney called it, uh, it was some play on the, the word Frankenstein, but they had to create their own, their own shade of green for it. And it's actually, I find it funny that Disney even made this movie. Why go through so much trouble to... I mean, if I'm the decision makers there, if I'm the executives and the producers that are taking on this project and like Greenlight, like why would you make the decision to make this movie knowing Warner Brothers still has the rights? I mean, they would have had to think it was like, it was like in the bag. Like people are gonna love this. We can keep doing this. We can find our ways around. I mean, listen, it works for me, man. I fucking love the movie. It was just a weird production and a weird just choice for Disney to make. Uh, they should have just like sold the rights to Warner Brothers. I don't know, whatever. Uh, speaking of production, Sam Raimi. What an interesting hire. Uh, I mean, he had an eye for the fantastic. He has an eye for the fantastic. Uh, he he blew up doing violent and niche horror movies. He did make it really really big with Spider-Man the trilogy from 2002 to 2007. It's just funny that Disney once again another odd decision. It's funny that they went for that guy to make a family-friendly fantasy film that is a prequel to one of the most beloved films of all time. And one review I read on the film actually kind of hits the nail on the head. They basically said that there were certain sequences or ideas that, like, oozed with Raimi's style and they were really good. And they would start to get, like, really really good or really dark or scary. But then you could see, you can, like, feel the film pulling back because they can't go full Raimi. They still managed to create a really consistent tone throughout the movie, so I don't think that's a problem. But there's hints of a better executed and maybe even darker story that's taken away from us. Although a lighthearted, fun fairy tale is what I and most families watching that movie signed up for, so that's okay. It's just weird that Sam Raimi was the guy that they chose. I do think the movie is cute and funny. Uh, very cute, very funny. It has most, it's a mostly simple and lighthearted themes and messages. Uh, it's accessible to people of all ages, I think. It, it doesn't really pander to anyone, though. It doesn't pander to kids or it doesn't... It doesn't make something that looks like it's a kid movie and clearly panders to adults, you know. It's it's for everybody, like I just said. I think it's almost like a play. Not quite as genuine as that feeling of, like, w Wizard of Oz. But once again, it recalls the feel of that movie in a way. Uh, the cast is mostly spirited and solid. I feel like everyone's really trying and having fun. Just a, just a good, solid, really solid cast. 
Uh, Franco does well with that odd humor. It's not the funniest, but it works. I think he sells it. He had the uh, the Herculean task of selling that while uh, while talking to stuffed animals and dolls. Uh, Michelle Williams, who I really like, had good chemistry with him, so they they balance they bounced off each other real well. I really like her in the role of Glinda. She plays a a really good princess kind of character. You know, I if I think it's almost cliche. It's like it feels like they kind of wrote a character just in the mold of a cliche princess but she and Raimi and then like her chemistry with the cast it, it sells it though so it's interesting um I think Mila Kunis really chews it up as uh as the Wicked Witch and Theodora uh, she plays two characters basically not in the same way that Michelle Williams and Zach Braff do the Wicked Witch definitely does feel like a dark extension of the innocent and loving Theodora she transforms with the help of her evil sister Evanor after Oz breaks her heart well, he doesn't handle her feelings as well as he sh- could or should, and then he kind of disrespects and ghosts her, and then Evanor lies about uh, him making a move on her, and then Theodore transforms. So it's a, it's a little complicated, you know? Um, it's actually it's a tragic backstory to one of the most iconic villains in cinema history, and I think it works. It really resonates with me because she was... It's It feels so simple. She was just a, a young woman. She trusted too much and she couldn't learn from her own mistakes or escaped her escape her pain in time to heal and then boom she just spiraled into a mess that that plus her evil sister pushing her down fucked her over <laughs> the movie ditches the the movie ditches that narrative though after uh, after the transformation uh, mostly i mean when uh when the evil witch first shows up in the village you know she comes down in a black cloud of smoke and she comes up in this crazy fire really cool scene once again, like I said, that's, that oozes Raimi's style. Uh, and she mentions, to like they rec- like Oz and Glinda recognize her, and they're like, oh, uh, is that Theodora? She's like, you did this to me. So they sort of acknowledge it, but after that, she's just uh, she's just like a, a big, you know, mustache-twirling villain throughout. So they start out real nice, and then it kind of devolves into, ooh, this is the villain now. But still, I think it's just a, a, a nice, tragic backstory one of the most beloved villains of all time i think the score it's enchanting the word to use is enchanting i know that some critics and people thought it was bland like they thought a lot about this movie but to me it is oz uh danny elfman's superhero scores definitely sound really really similar because i think his style and approach it seems like it can only do so much in certain kinds of films and like genres, but this, this is a very, very strong score, in, in my opinion at least, and it really helps elevate, like if someone else did the score, I couldn't really imagine anything else, like, like I said, this feels like Oz, so I think the score really drives this movie home for me, I, I listen to it all the time, sometimes I run out of breath when I'm talking, to wrap, start to wrap this up, there's no sequel in sight per se, uh, around the time that the movie was being released, Mila Kunis stated in an interview that the main cast was uh, signed on for a sequel. Joe Roth was ready, produce, ready to produce again, and Mitchell Kapner was going to write the screenplay, supposedly. I don't know if any of that is was like actually concrete info at the time, or ever truly confirmed, but it did seem that Disney was eager to produce a follow-up at the time. Uh, Sam Raimi said he didn't want to do a sequel. Uh, he liked the film and the production, but it wasn't something that he was interested in. Uh, Kapner said that they weren't going to involve Dorothy or anything from The Wizard of Oz. They weren't going to try and push for that. They weren't worried about connecting directly to that original movie. 
the Oz the Great and Powerful, it took place 20 years before that. So they have a lot of time and story, excuse me, to work with. <laughs> I'm not sure if, uh, if that sequel is totally dead, and I don't know how much work was done on the story. Uh, IMDb still has the sequel listed as in development. Uh, no title yet, but there's a supposed plot synopsis that reads, Oz and Glinda have their firstborn child named Olivia. They don't tell Olivia that an evil spell has been cast on her by someone she never knew. That's very interesting, but it's also extremely reminiscent of, if not the exact same, as Sleeping Beauty. I mean, you can do a lot with that premise. I mean, I'm not saying that that premise there means that there has to be a spell that is everlasting sleep and a kiss has to wake her up. Like, they don't, they wouldn't have to go the same route. But it would be an odd choice to choose such a similar setup to another classic fairy tale. You know, why would you do that? Once again, what a weird decision it would be by Disney. Especially one that's being milked right now with 2014's Maleficent and the upcoming even if uh, the idea would be to like make this sequel to Oz like a mashup of fairy tales and uh, and mix up the mythology a little bit, this is still a shaky dia idea at best, at least based on timing, at least. But then again, I really don't see this sequel coming to fruition. I would love, love it, but it just it isn't really in demand. The movie didn't make mountains of money either, as I've said, so there isn't really a re any reason to push it. I think that a sequel could come together on Disney Plus if they did go for it. Unfortunately, I know the scale would be would be way too small and the cast would be entirely different, and I do not want that. Do not want it. So I would absolutely resent it. Um, it could be high quality, and enjoyable if they do something with the Oz property on Disney Plus, but. It's not going to be what I want, so fuck it. Uh, it's, it's not me, it's you. Uh, uh, fuck it. I get, well, that about wraps it up for today, you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully uh, hopefully you like this. If you've seen Oz the Great and the Powerful, drop, uh, drop a comment below or hit us on social media. Let us know how you feel about it. I fucking love it. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Maybe, maybe in the future it'll be on Best Seat in the House. We'll see how it shakes out. The Best Seat in the House, The Conjuring 2. That's up. You can listen to that. It's not on YouTube, but you can pretty much listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for checking everything out. Uh, go ahead and subscribe to the channel and like this video. Drop a comment below, as I said, about anything I talked about today or anything that you want to bring to the discussion. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Backroom Movie News for updates on upcoming videos coming to you guys. Thank you for tuning in once again. We will see you next time on Backroom Movie News. Bye.